This, 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 this is mythical. Ear Biscuits is supported by AC Pro. It's blazing hot outside. You get into your car and turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows out hot air. The issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with an AC Pro. Welcome to Ear Biscuits, the podcast where two lifelong friends talk about life for a long time. I'm Red. And I'm Link. This week at the Round Table of Dim Lighting, we're giving the floor to my co-host, Rhett McLaughlin. Four years ago was a pivotal moment in not only the life of this podcast, but also the public life of my friend, Rhett McLaughlin. Hmm. Because four years ago is when he first shared publicly about his spiritual journey along the path of deconstruction. Is this NPR enough for you? Well, the interesting thing is... Um, and now... It doesn't sound a lot like NPR. It actually sounds like, maybe more fittingly, like a podcast that might be done by like the 700 Club. Yeah, okay, you're welcome. Which I and now, in following with the tradition of every anniversary of that initial podcast, he is here to give us another update on where he is at spiritually. Thank you, Jim. I just feel like I couldn't call you by your actual name. Okay, Link. I can be Jim. Link. I can be Jim the active listener today. Can you be Jimmy? Let's get into That's it. my dad's man. name, Jimmy. I know you've been pulling together lots of... Uh, I, I made you read through this outline last, last night. I didn't read through it. Mm. Because I want to be surprised. Oh, really? I skimmed it. Okay. I applied your speed reading techniques, which uh, as many have pointed out, was just skimming. But let's not get into that. Uh, oh, let's focus. Okay, all let's right. Focus. Yeah, give me a second to think about that. Okay, so yes, um, every year when this time approaches, given the fact that this podcast is not primarily or even mostly about spiritual things, um, we have this tradition of, of talking about these things, and every year, as the date approaches, I think to myself, we're we gonna do it again? Are we gonna do it again? Do I have anything to say? <laughs> I have I something in my mouth, like a chia seed from a smoothie. Um, well, I'm really interested in uh, where you're at because uh, this is a good occasion for, for me to hear it kind of like all put into one, like, one spot, so. I'm all ears, especially given the fact that since last year, a book, at least one book has been published that is about the topic of spiritual deconstruction from an author that is in the church. I didn't read the chapter, but uh, I know that the chapter was devoted to your story mm. <laughs> completely. Yeah. It's a chapter about you. Yeah. I'm honored, and uh, I'm going to be talking about that. Okay. Um yeah, well, when this time comes around, I always start thinking, do I have anything to say? And then once I start thinking and writing down some notes, I'm like, oh, I have a lot to say. I always got a lot to say. I, I, I almost 
uh, hate myself for it, <laughs> but I got a lot to say and I'm gonna say it, thank you for being here. I am using notes as I always do when I talk about these things because as has been shown, sometimes the things I say get put into books. <laughs> and so I like to make sure that I say the things in the way that I wanna say them. A book. Um, well, no, Link, I think this marks, this may be the third book about deconstruction that okay. one or both of go. us has mentioned in. So we're on a streak. And I think there's another one that's actually coming out really soon that I haven't read yet that I'm hoping we're in. <laughs> uh, we'll maybe talk about that next year. So this is, I'm gonna talk about, I'm gonna recap my story, a very like Cliff's Notes version of the deconstruction story because I find what I, what I often do is I'm talking about it. I'm like, if you wanna hear the whole story, go to listen to this long podcast from four years ago. And I don't want you to have to do that if you don't wanna do that. If this is the only thing that you've ever listened to of us talking about this, I'd like this to be able to stand alone because I wanna respect your time. Um, I'm also gonna talk about some people who have been really helpful, some, some writers who have been really helpful in helping me understand uh, my spiritual journey. I'm gonna tell my favorite Bible story. So pull up a chair, get out your felt board. Oh. Um, I'm going to tell my favorite Bible story. And then I will be talking about this. Uh, Do the kids get candy afterward? You can get some candy. Uh, I'm not the kid. I wasn't referring to me. Okay, if you're a kid and you're listening, which I don't know if I would recommend, uh, yes, you can, you have to get yourself some candy at the end as a reward because I don't have the ability to get it to you. And then I'll be talking about this book in it and I'll try to tie it all together. So Cliff's Notes version of my deconstruction slash deconversion story. Grew up in an evangelical Christian home, evangelical according to myself, uh, meaning that the deserved punishment for my sins of which everybody was guilty was hell. To receive salvation from that punishment, you gotta repent and profess faith in Jesus Christ to forgive you at which point you enter a relationship with God and you're born again. That's how some people would refer to it, being born again. Part of that is the Bible is without error and it is the authoritative revelation of God. And it is my duty, every Christian's duty, to spread the good news, AKA the gospel. That's sort of a general description of like my worldview. So this was- as Born you, and raised in that. As you might remember, Pretty important. Yeah. Everything. The most the most important aspect of my life, right? It was the thing that mattered the most. And I was born in 1977. I am 46 years old. Uh, and what that means is that I never really questioned that for the first 20 years of my life, right? Um, I think it's hard for people who maybe are under 35 to relate to the fact that like, you know, before the internet, if you mm -hmm. grew up before the internet, you could, you know, this is what you were taught. This is what most people in your community believed. You didn't really know anybody that thought differently. Maybe they thought slightly differently about things, but like there was really no impetus to question any of the core ideas of Christianity. Like why, why would you, right? Um, but of course, the internet, that damned internet came along when I was, pretty much when I was in college is when I started yeah. really looking at it. And at that point, I started to 
find lots of people who disagreed with what I believed, had a lot of things to say about the things that I believed, right? Um, And so for the first time, I kind of started out on this quest of trying to confirm that I believed the right thing. Because again, this wasn't just some like hobby. This was everything, right? This was not just the most important thing, it was essentially the only thing that ultimately mattered. Every single other aspect of my life was organized under this first proposition, which was all those things that I just stated. The Bible's authoritative, I'm in a relationship with Jesus. And so I started reading there's, I mean, there's a lot of resources, and there's much many, there's many more resources now. But there were a, a lot of resources at the time. If you wanted to confirm what you believed as a Christian, there were a lot of Christian apologists. That means a defender of the the faith, uh, who could provide answers to a lot of the questions that I had. So, I started into that process in my twenties. The problem is, is that when I started looking at a lot of these answers to the questions that I had you end up just sort of incidentally getting exposed to a lot of arguments against the things that you believe, right? Because maybe you're reading about it and you're introduced to a whole new idea or your research is a little bit deeper and you find, oh, there's an answer to the answer to the answer to the answer, right? Oh, there's people debating these things. So that was about a 10 year period of still being very, you know, a very strong Christian, still very, it was still the most important thing. But I would say by my 30s, um, the amount of good arguments causing me to question what I believed had reached a bit of a critical mass. I'd seen a, I'd seen a lot of different things causing me to doubt. And so I went from believing that I was right to doubting that I was right to believing that I was wrong. That was a long period of time. Long period of time. And then once I believed I was wrong, I stopped calling myself a Christian. Now, this is a vast oversimplification of the process. There is a really long podcast where I talk about all the details, or a lot of them. Uh, But it was a very drawn-out process. It was very painful. You were there the whole time. I was talking with you about it. Definitely. I was talking to my wife about it. She was crying uh, on a regular basis. Um, And I was very—it was very disorienting. It was not easy. It was, I would say, probably the hardest thing that I've ever done wholesale, you Mm -hmm. know, when you take it all into account. Where did I end up landing? Um, well, first of all, I, I like to think that I'm still landing, right? This is a long, drawn-out landing that may never, may never fully, uh, I may never fully plant my feet. But my goal continues to be to be in the place that is the most honest and truthful based on the available information that I have, right? So right now, I believe that the Bible and Christianity as a belief system that uh, they are a product of people rather than a product of God. I'm not an atheist. Um, kind of went through a little bit of like a angry, you might call it an angry atheist phase, which is very common for people who are coming out of the faith. But I never really got all the way to atheism. And um, the reason I don't call myself an atheist is because I'm personally compelled to believe that there's something else going on beyond what I can see and understand. Um, I don't believe this because I have evidence for it. I believe it because I want to believe it. I believe it because I want it to be true. I kind of want to live in a world where there's some magic, right? 
Okay. Now, from a philosophical standpoint, I do think that there are some really interesting evidences or arguments that compel me to believe that there's some intention to the universe. But again, I just don't think I can, I can't convince you of it. Right. Um, and I'm not trying to, but my spiritual life, very important to me, really vital to me. Uh, but I'm not convinced that I can come to any confident conclusions about spiritual matters. At least not in the same way you can come to confident conclusions about, you know, uh, like scientific things or whatever, right? It's, it feels like a different category. Mm -hmm. So whatever tr spiritual truth there may be is probably not an accumulation of facts. It really can't be defended. I, ca I can't convince somebody of it. And I probably shouldn't try to. So... This to me is the most honest and truthful position that I can have at the moment. Now, I could be wrong. I am wrong. 100%. I know that I'm wrong, at least in some places. I don't know where I'm wrong. You're 100% certain that you're wrong some percentage. Exactly. <laughs> okay. I am definitely wrong about this. To some degree. Maybe completely. But I'm, okay. but, and, I, and I'm not so sure, like, being right, being wrong, I don't know if that's what it's about anyway. I'm just telling you that this is my, this is my POV. I'm, you know, like, if you go visit a national park, and you're walking on a trail, and you pass somebody, and they say, oh, they start telling you things, like, and about two, you, maybe you got a question, and they're like, well, about two miles up, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's just a dude in the park. Right. I mean, maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. But you're you kinda, almost there. Keep going. But you, really? yeah, right, right. But you're like, what, what is? Yeah, a, what's it, your almost? That's a perfect analogy. Because what is almost to you? It's just a dude in a park. That's yeah. what I am. I'm a dude in a park. Who wants? Who wants to give you hope? Because he liked what he's coming back from. Well, I'm not even saying that. I again, I get into this thing where it's just like, why do we talk about this? And I talk about it because I think about it a lot. It's very important to me. This is our podcast. We can talk about whatever the hell we want to talk about. Um, but also I do find that there's a lot of people who are like, thank you for talking about this, you know, going through something similar, thinking about similar things. I like to hear another perspective. Well, spoiler alert next week, um, I'll be sharing my perspective and I will be giving all of the answers mm. with 100% certainty. So, okay, uh, if you just want, you know, if you just want to wait a week for that, uh, I'm here for you. If you just want answers it'll be quick uh, hey that's a good teaser yeah i like that uh but for now yeah it's like you're you're at this place where th these are your beliefs that you've just described and you're still very interested in it because an application could be this is my conclusion therefore i'm i'm on to the next thing like i'm i'm kind of into like uh Mammalian delivery. Of I, I am also into that of children. When I just thought like you're babies. Okay, you like mammal babies. Anyway, zoo babies. One of my favorite things. Yeah, any book about zoo babies. So you are, but you think so. You still think about this a lot. This is this is a all the time hobby. Yeah, this is a fascination. My, my, my wife, my wonderful, beautiful wife. Um, her name is Jessie. Uh, she comes downstairs into the garage. We work out together, you know, pretty regularly. 
And if I get down there before her, I'm playing a podcast or a YouTube video. And she and, and I don't play music when I work out. Such a weirdo. And like, I'm always listening to people talk about this stuff from every perspective. I listen to a lot of just pastors talking about things. I, like I don't I'm, I don't just listen to people who confirm the things that I think. I listen to all. I love people talking about this stuff. And I know, I know Creflo Dollar, he's my favorite. You know, I, I don't really get into Creflo. I, I get into the uh, people who are talking about it a little bit from a philosophical standpoint. Okay. But she's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm just interested in this. You know, I, this is, it, it, is, it is a hobby of mine. So where are you taking us right now? Okay. So one of the things that I noticed after I left the Christian faith, um, there was something that remained. There was this sort of core of who I am that remained. And at that core was a desire to live a meaningful life, to have purpose, to pursue pursue truth, to love my wife, even though she makes fun of me for the things that I listen to, uh, to love my kids, to love my friends, to be a good boss, to, to, you know, the same kind of stuff that I wanted to be true about my life and that I was interested in when I called myself a Christian. Um, and there was something else that remained, this desire to connect with something beyond me, beyond myself, beyond my understanding, something that you might roughly call spirituality. Um, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but I talked about um, Richard Holloway, former Bishop of Edinburgh uh, in the Episcopal Church, who's written a bunch of books. Um, I love the way he talks about faith. And I talked about his book, Stories We Tell Ourselves, and um, really connected with me in, in the way that I think about spiritual things. But this year I read his memoir, Leaving Alexandria, a memoir of faith and doubt. And I found a couple of passages that I think illustrate this idea that I'm talking about of what I discovered about myself. So he says, uh, and I will not attempt to do this in a Scottish accent because I would fail. I did not know the word at the time or the idea that lay behind it, but I was experiencing latency, the sense of something hidden behind what is seen. How can you find words for what is beyond sound, make visible what vanishes when seen? I was looking for something beyond myself, something out there that would take me out of in here, the life that was going on in my head. I was looking for transcendence, the beyond that is sometimes encountered in the midst of things, usually when we are not looking for it. This is the stab of awareness that causes us to turn on our heels to catch the shadow that is behind us. It is the sense of a presence beyond any knowing that we reach out towards. We're missing something, either because it is not there or because we have not yet found it. He goes on to say, yet there is also the sense of something just out of reach, something unseen that listens from that invisible listener, a colossal demand has exerted itself upon some men and women who then give themselves utterly away to it. Jesus called it father and offered himself to it without condition. Since his death on its behalf, countless others have followed his example. Always a minority, they provoke discomfort even among believers because most believers acquire only a mild version of faith. 
and are made anxious by those who catch it badly. When, when I read this, I was like, this, th- yes, I'm one of those. I caught it badly. This is why I listen to it when I work out. <laughs> okay. It does make people uncomfortable. I've noticed that. <laughs> you know, um, I remember being a kid in a Christian community and having friends who called themselves Christians, who went to church, but it kind of didn't seem like it was that important. Yeah. And I was always like, what? How is this not the most important thing to you? Like, if this is true, if God is real, if you can have a relationship with God through Jesus, if you can have the Spirit of God inside your heart directing you, guiding you, if, if what you're doing now is impacting your eternity, if you could share this message, message with somebody and they could also be in eternity in heaven versus hell, isn't this the, this is the shit. <laughs> this, is, this is the most important thing. What, what is wrong with you that you don't get this? I remember thinking that about a lot of people that we knew. Meanwhile, we were starting Christian bands and <laughs> getting involved in Campus Crusade, going on mission trips, becoming full-time Christian missionaries because it was important. Right. Why would you not give your life to this? Why would you not give everything to this? And one of the things that I've, I've noticed about myself is that this preoccupation with God, this deep desire to know God, this curiosity about God, is ironically what unraveled my faith in God. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, it's like, if you believe in Bigfoot, and I'm not saying that believe, and listen, I'm not saying that believing in God and believing in Bigfoot are on the, there's a lot of atheists who would say that, I believe in God. So, okay, I don't, I don't think that these are on the same level. This is an analogy. You don't believe in Bigfoot. I do not believe in Bigfoot. So you should say that too. Um, if I really, if somebody really believes in Bigfoot, and they believe in Bigfoot, so much so that they become a Bigfoot hunter. They have a television show. They've written a few books. They know everything there is to know about Bigfoot. They're always out there looking for Bigfoot. They are in the best position to come to the conclusion that Bigfoot does not exist. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so I'm not saying that I don't believe that God exists, but I'll, I'll be talking specifically about what actually happened to me in my deconstruction. It is harder to do that when you have a Bigfoot show, though. I will point that out. Exactly. exactly. That's, that's the thing. Uh, you know, it's just like if you're a pastor and you're beginning to doubt, it's very difficult to, that's your job, being a pastor. If you're a Bigfoot hunter and you know Bigfoot's not real, but that check keeps rolling in every time TLC calls up, I don't know what, show, what channel it's on anymore. Multiple, probably. Oh, yeah. It's hard to let go of that. But if you go out there enough and you never see Bigfoot, eventually you might come to some suspicions about whether or not Bigfoot exists. Um, 
I think that I was especially susceptible to the type of deconstruction and deconversion that I went through because of the particular type of Christianity that I subscribe to, because of American evangelical Christianity. And I would say, you know, more specifically, you know, non-denominational, reformed-ish, reformed Baptist-ish Christianity. We had a very clear picture of God, a pretty detailed picture of God. We had books called Systematic Theology. We, we, we had books called Knowing God. You know, we had, we had a picture of God, a detailed picture of God that we kind of sold to each other. And now I get to tell my favorite Bible story. Okay. You'll probably remember this one, but you've probably forgotten some of the details. And it is a wild ride. <laughs> Irabiscus is supported by DoorDash. I'm keeping less alcoholic beverages in my house um, lately. I'm kind of on that swing of the pendulum. Okay. But I will say, there's times when when you wanna crack open an adult beverage. Yes, it happens. Sometimes amongst friends, sometimes alone. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't I, wanna get into the details. I recommend with friends. If you're looking to celebrate with some special drinks, Here's to alcohol deliveries with DoorDash. Whether you're hosting, sending a congratulatory gift, or just staying in to chill with a cold one, DoorDash is an easy call. The alcohol selection on DoorDash is top shelf. With thousands of stores all over the country, you're sure to find what you're looking for and more. They have it all, beer, wine, mixers, and for those that don't drink, mocktails and more can be delivered straight to your door. Save up to 25% off up to a $15 value when you spend $35 or more with code Ear. So whether you're grabbing drinks for an event or staying in for the night, DoorDash is here to help you have a great evening, any evening. Terms apply, must be 21 or older to order alcohol, drink responsibly, delivery and promotions available only in select markets. I love this story. It is the story of Moses and the golden calf. Okay. Okay. So the Old Testament in general, I just love it because these stories are so wild, man. Um, but this takes place in the book of Exodus, right? So we're following the story of the Israelites getting out of Egypt, you know, after there's a series of, you know, things that happened to Pharaoh and the Egyptians and, you know, God's doing all this stuff in Egypt. Eventually the people get out, they go through the, the Red Sea that God parts and then God collapses the sea on the Egyptian army. And anyway, Moses and the Israelites get out into the desert and they're wandering around the desert, uh, wandering around the desert 40 years. Um, and God does some really interesting things during this period of time. Um, he starts to talk to Moses directly and uh, his chief method is by inhabiting a cloud on top of a mountain and then calling Moses into the cloud and then telling him things. Um, you know, he'll call him up there. He gives him, I mean, basically rules. He, 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 the, the God in the cloud gives him a bunch of rules. The ones that you've heard of, yes, like the 10 commandments, they're in there, you know, don't kill, don't steal. But then there's some very specific ones like if you beat your slave and they die, 
you must be punished. But if you beat them and they survive for a day or two, it's cool because they're your property. Uh, but if you knock out their tooth, you got to let them go free. Really? Yeah. This one's better though. If a bull gores somebody to death, the bull must be killed but not eaten. The owner will not be punished unless this bull is known as a troublemaker. If everybody knew that your bull was a little bit of a mm, up to some bullshit on a regular basis, uh-huh. then we're going to kill both the bull and you Oh, wow. if that bull gets out and does some damage. Uh, that kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense. I think I'm for that. <laughs> This is not this is not Leviticus law. This is just This is Exodus. This is just Okay. These are the things that God said. I mean, there's lots of rules in the in, in the Torah, you know, those first five books, but Okay. Uh, this is the stuff that God said dur- during the, you know, when they were in the wilderness. Okay. That's just a little setup for how God communicated and the kinds of things that God said. But then there was this particular time where God calls Moses up to the cloud and he spends 40 days and he goes well beyond giving him rules. He gives him very specific instructions on exactly how to build the house, the tabernacle that God wants to be inside. Mm-hmm. And if you think that you have like heard very detailed, difficult to understand Ikea instructions, this is like so many levels deeper than that. This is 40 days of instructions on exactly how to make the, the, the tabernacle that God wanted to be in. Like the materials that it needed to be in, what the furniture on the inside, like what the table needed to look like, the dimensions of everything, the lamp and the lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, all this stuff. And then what to wear when you come into the tabernacle, who can come in the tabernacle, what they have to do when they come into my presence, the sacrifices, but not just what they need to sacrifice, but how they need to sacrifice and what they need to do with the organs and the specific organs. And you gotta put some blood on different parts of your body when you come in. Very, very detailed instructions. And in the process, he gives him two stone tablets. You've seen it, Charlton Heston in in the 10 Commandments. He gives uh, Moses, played by Charlton Heston, he gives him two stone tablets, presumably with the Ten Commandments on them, although scholars are not quite in agreement that that's exactly what was on the, the, uh, the, the we've always been told it's the Ten Commandments, and it's like, well, it's not exactly that clear, but probably. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the mountain, uh, Moses has left his brother Aaron in charge, <laughs> um, and the people <laughs> are like, hey, Aaron, we uh, we are getting a antsy. Yeah, yeah. We're like, we don't know what happened to this dude Moses. Like, yeah, he led us this far, but like, we're pretty sure he's not coming back. It's been quite some time. So, uh, could you like make us a god to worship or something? And Aaron is like, bring me all your gold. They bring him their gold jewelry. He melts it down. He makes a little cow. And then he says, here's your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, it's always surprised me, uh, but this was pretty cool and convincing to the people. Um, They were like, yeah, cool. Uh, Let's start making sacrifices to this golden calf. This is our God. And they started doing rituals and, and dancing. Back at the top of the mountain, God is like, Moses, your people just made a little golden cow and they're worshiping it. 
I am very pissed off about this and I am going to kill them all. And Moses is like, hold up, God. It would be a little bit crazy if you, like you took all this time to bring us out of Egypt, you've done all this stuff for us. And now if you just kill us all, like what's the story there, bro? You know, like that's not a good story. Plus you kind of promised our ancestors that you would build a great nation out of their descendants and like that would like sort of not be doing that. Mm -hmm. And God, it was like, God is like, ah, I see your point. So, it's like, by the oh, way, I'm getting a little nervous at this point that you're becoming a pastor. I'm just, <laughs> like, what is happening here? I miss my calling, man. I Go would, ahead. I would have loved to have been one. Uh, all the cool clothes. Go ahead. So, Moses takes his two tablets. He goes down the mountain, and when he gets down to the bottom of the mountain, he sees the people all dancing around the golden count. He's like. Guys, what the hell? He's so mad. He throws down the tablets and breaks them. The things that God, I mean, God gave him the tablets. He's yeah. so mad. He breaks them. He breaks the Ikea instructions right there. Well, it was Ten Commandments. And he's so mad. He takes the golden calf. He throws it in a fire. Then he grinds it down to powder. Then he scatters it across the drinking water and he makes them fools drink it. <laughs> okay. It's like, drink that God. <laughs> and then he says, okay, whoever is on my side, come over here. And the Levites, it's the priests, they come over to him and Moses is like, all right, if you're really on God's side, then I want you to go into camp. Here, take these swords, go into camp, kill your brother and your friend and your neighbor. Prove it to me. They go into camp and they kill 3,000 of their brothers, friends, and neighbors. And oh, God is ouch. like, good. And then God is like, well, but I'm still gonna unleash a plague on you. Why the hell not? Great story. That's it. I mean, the book continues and it's a, I mean, it continues to be a wild ride. Um, but I wanna stop there because really the point that I wanted to focus on was the building of the golden calf, right? Okay. So what is the significance of this story? Um, well, this may not be what your pastor tells you. This may be what Pastor Rhett tells you. God. <laughs> um, the people became impatient with Moses, right? Moses taking too long. So what do they do? They made their own God. And it was a God that they could see, that they could understand, that they could relate to. It was tangible. It was defined. It was right there. It was a golden calf. So imagine if you're a kid in this group of people and you see all these people worshiping this golden calf. Everyone, every adult in your community is doing it. The guy in charge, Aaron, he's telling you that this is your God. What do you do? Well, you don't question that, right? The God that you are presented with is the God that you accept most often, um, regardless of the nature of that God, at least initially. And the God that, that I could understand, that my community could understand, that my country could understand is a certain type of God, right? It's, it, it's the God of, a, of uh, and I, when I, you know, not the, full, the whole country, like, you know, a big swath of the country the God of American evangelical Christianity. And when I grew up, I took a closer look at that God 
but what I would say, the caricature of God that I had been given, and I became convinced that it wasn't God. I became convinced that whatever God is, it must be bigger than the God that I had placed my faith in. It must be bigger than the golden calf that I was given. So you drank it. Uh, I mean, did I drink it? I don't know. But somebody who has really helped me understand some of this stuff and has articulated some ideas that have resonated with me, another author, um, Anthony DeMello. Uh, this is a Jesuit priest from India. Oh, I thought you played for the Lakers. <laughs> That's Carmelo Anthony, sorry. You like mentioned, you like, you just mixed up. There was like D'Angelo, Russell, Anthony. Don't let me throw you. Yeah. This is just okay. a passing joke. Um, so he's a Jesuit priest from India. He's known for his uh, writing and teaching in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and I, last year I read his book, Awareness, that I have right here. I'm going to read some, some, some of this. Essentially, he outlines his view of spirituality in this book. And he, uh, I highly recommend, this will be my wreck, is this book. It's a talk that he that he gave at like a retreat. And then they just kind of turned it into a book. So when you read it, it sounds like somebody talking. So I recommend the Audible because it's literally the recording of him actually saying this at a group. Um, but there's this section where he's talking about Thomas Aquinas, you know, St. Thomas in the Catholic Church, lived in the 13th century, wrote a lot of stuff about God. Um, and he's describing some things that Aquinas said about God. In the prologue of his Summa Theologica, which was the summary of all his theology, Aquinas says, about God, we cannot say what he is, but rather what he is not. And so we cannot speak about how he is, but rather how he is not. And then in another commentary, he talks about the ways of knowing God. And the highest form of the knowledge of God is to know God, tanquam ignotum, to know God as the unknown. He discusses this a little bit. And then Anthony says, the fact is that you're surrounded by God and you don't see God because you, quote, know God or you, quote, know about God. The final barrier to the vision of God is your God concept. You miss God because you think you know. That's the terrible thing about religion. Great book, a lot of wisdom in there. Um, but this really, the way he talks about this God concept was very helpful to me because it helped me understand the way that I had conceived of God for so much of my life, right? An analogy, he, he's got a lot of really great analogies in the book. Uh, I love analogies, and I'm going to give one of my own that has been helpful in this. Um, just imagine that there are multiple people who have telescopes pointed at the sun to look at the sun. And then there's one guy who starts saying, hey, I think that the sun is in my telescope. <laughs> you know, I think that my telescope is the is the thing like it's the right telescope um you know you're convinced that the thing that gives you your concept of god 
in this case, your religion of choice is the thing that is ultimate, the thing that matters versus whatever it's pointing to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that, for me, was what happened. I, I think in many ways, it was a complete preoccupation with the telescope itself and a defense of the telescope itself uh, and being convinced that I had found the right telescope. And I'm learning more and more that my deconstruction was not necessarily a deconstruction of God. It was a deconstruction of my telescope. Okay, yeah. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about the book that I was featured in, Link. Oh, yeah, here we go. Uh, to tease this idea out that we're talking about the telescopes. Because this view that I just described is actually pretty well described in this book. So this book is called Surprised by Doubt, How Disillusionment Can Invite Us into a Deeper Faith by Josh Chatrall or Josh Chatrall and Jack Carson. Now, uh, I'll just say right up front, these guys are evangelical Christians um, who, you know, are still evangelical Christians. So as you can imagine, I do not agree with the conclusions that they come to in this book. And I am included in this book, not as a beacon of truth, but as an example of what not to do and what not to believe. But I will say, um, Josh and I, and you, have a mutual friend, and that was how he got in touch with me to tell me that I was gonna be included in this book, to send me a copy a transcript of the book and including the chapter that I was in. And I had a little correspondence with him. Before it was finalized? Before it was finalized. Okay. I don't, I haven't compared what he sent me with what ended up in the book. Um, I think it's pretty much the same, but it, it, I really appreciate the courtesy of, you know, having talked to me ahead of time. Uh, and I will say that both of these guys, I don't know Jack, but I mean, he wrote the book with, with Josh. You know, they're very charitable. Uh, they're thoughtful. They discuss deconstruction and deconversion without attacking people's character. While I may be, what I think and the conclusion that I have come to are held up as examples of what they don't agree with, but they don't, they don't bash me. They, they don't question my character and my motivations. So I really appreciate that because... That has happened. That it hap- that, that happens most <laughs> of the time that people will talk about this stuff. <clears throat> and I will say that they both have had significant struggles with doubt, like real doubt. Um, and they describe that in, this, in, in their doubts that are similar to the doubts that I've had, that many people who have deconstructed have had. And, they're, and they don't shy away from those things. They come to different conclusions. Yes, uh, they offer a defense, a traditional defense of the Christian faith and they land in basically an evangelical POV at the end of the day. Uh, But they are honest about it, they're charitable, and I appreciate the way that these guys have gone about this. Now, they use an analogy. You know they got me with an analogy. They use an an analogy that C.S. Lewis introduced back in the day in reference to mere Christianity. And... um, Basically, it's this idea that Christianity is a house with many rooms. And what C.S. Lewis saw his role as is to invite people into 
what he called mere Christianity. I mean, that's a famous book, but it was also a concept. Basically, it means the baseline ideas, the foundational truths of Christianity that would get you in the front door. Unite all Christians, and he that was the the front door in the hallway. Okay, and then along the hallway there are these rooms, and that would be your different traditions and denominations. And his C.S. Lewis was like, "You need to settle into one of these rooms. Like, if you really want to, like, sit down, have tea, sit next to the fire, have community, get out of the hallway, get into one of the rooms, and that's where you experience real a real home." But that wasn't he wasn't trying to convince people of a room. He was trying to get people into the door. And so Josh and Jack expand on this analogy and introduce something called attic Christianity. And this describes groups of Christians that kind of forget that they're a part of the larger house and they retreat into the attic, right? Which is this confined, restricted space where you can become convinced that you are correct, that you are the most correct, maybe the only ones who are correct, that you have like you're the closest thing to the truth, right? And this just describes quite a few sort of uh, sects of Christ- S-E-C-T-S of Christianity, including, yeah. you know, American evangelicalism or what I described before, this non-denominational reformed-ish, Baptist-ish, Southern evangelicalism that we were a part of, that I was a part of. You were actually part of the Presbyterian Church, Link. Yeah. Um, but we tended to think like the reason most if you're if you're like if your mind is like mine you kind of convinced yourself that of all the options that you had in your community that this one is the best one that's why you go you go to the church that's the best church according to what they believe not according to like who's got the best music or whatever i mean a lot of people make that but i was like you believe the right thing right um so, and then they talk about this process. There's people who are in the attic and when you're in the attic and you're in this restricted, confined space, you're just asking to hit your head on the rafters, right? You're, you're asking to become disillusioned with this very narrow view that you have adopted. And then what you do is you jump out of the second story attic and you land on the ground and it's, it's bad, bad news, right? And the point of the book is to encourage people who are in the attic to come back to the main floor of Christianity, examine the central claims of Christianity, the foundation, stay inside the house. Okay. Don't jump out. So how did I end up in the book, man? And I would say that you're kind of in the book. Um, You you know, this is is how you got in the book, Link. The uh, chapter eight called Open Spirituality it says, recently, the YouTube personality and co-host of Good Mythical Morning, Rhett McLaughlin, shared his deconversion story online. So the other host is Link Neal. That's not mentioned, but it's implied. <laughs> <laughs> that, I, I, I like it this way. In this setting, maybe exclusively in this setting, <laughs> yeah, this, this I is, don't need a shout hey, out. This is the problem. Hey, I'm going to say, though. This is the problem when you talk about when you blabber on about it as much as I do, you get in the books. When you shut up about it, you don't get in the books. Yeah. So I mean, good, bad, indifferent, I don't know. Seems that you'd prefer to not be in the book, which I don't I don't blame you. Um <laughs> so yeah. We, it means I didn't have to read it. <laughs> 
Ear Biscuits is supported by Superfeet. Did you know that more than 75% of Americans will experience foot pain in their lifetime, but only 10% will seek out a solution for that pain? Well, guess what? Your feet don't have to hurt. When you add the signature orthotic shape of Superfeet insoles to your shoes, you give your feet comfort and support where they need it most, helping redistribute forces to reduce stress and strain on your entire body, not just your feet. Superfeet insoles are clinically proven to decrease fatigue, reduce injury, and improve comfort. Since 1977, Superfeet has helped millions of people worldwide experience the life-changing magic of comfy, pain-free feet. Superfeet insoles upgrade the fit, feel, and function of your footwear to help you feel your best. The signature orthotic shape of Superfeet gives your feet the right type of support where you need it most. Physicians not only recommend Superfeet to their patients, they wear Superfeet insoles in their own shoes. Superfeet is the number one doctor worn and recommended insole. Superfeet has thousands of five-star reviews and is the insole of choice for top athletes on the field, on the ice, and on the slopes and everywhere in between. Superfeet has a wide range of insoles for every activity, every shoe, and every foot. From cushioned and flexible to firm and supportive, you can dial in your fit by taking their quick online quiz. We took the quiz, we've got our, mm -hmm. our insoles coming, they're on their way. You just answer a few short questions and Superfeet will recommend the best insole choice for you. Visit superfeet.com and enter the promo code EAR at checkout for 15% off your first order plus free shipping. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The idea is when you jump out of uh, uh, the Christian house, you can sort of inhabit other other houses or other uh, beliefs, right? And they, they outline different paths that people can take, and then they choose like a representative uh, person to represent that view. And I got to be the guy who represents open spirituality. That's what they call it. Okay. Um, and they use me to represent this view based on some of the things that I've said in the past, and then I think I've reinforced it in some ways by some of the things I've said today, but essentially. So they re you represented open spirituality as a viable option? No, 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 the, no, as, no. As the option where you jumped out of the attic instead of coming back down. I think, down. if I can recall, you can jump into atheism, or new atheism, they specifically call it, uh, open spirituality, mythic Christianity, which they use Jordan Peterson as the representative for that because he talks about Christianity as a myth. And um, I can't remember the other one. Uh, but you can kind of, you, you can jump into these different alternative belief systems that are not Christianity. Okay. And open spirituality is one of them. So I, I got the honor of being the representative here because I have talked about my problem with certainty about spiritual things, check my general openness to spirituality, check, and even my specific open, openness to and adherence to the teachings of Jesus, despite not really knowing what I think about Jesus historically, mm -hmm. check. And then after presenting what I believe, which again, 
they they do say this that like they're kind of using me as a representative and then they're critiquing this broader idea of open spirituality they're not specifically critiquing anything that i've said uh i'm not going to spend an, a, a lot of time talking about the critique and giving an answer to it just because i think well first of all i probably already lost you if you're not interested in this stuff but um i i have something more interesting that i want to talk about but i also don't want to seem like i'm dodging you know, these guys took the time to put me in the book and to use my view to represent this and then to critique it. So I do want to respond. Um, so I've kind of tried to narrow it down to a couple of points that they made. So they say that when you reject an established religious structure and then you pick and choose which spiritual ideas you want to subscribe to, you are making yourself the ultimate judge of truth. And this is not a reliable basis for a spiritual life. And I would say, I agree. I agree. You personally wanting something to be true or feeling that something is true doesn't make it true. Um, I would just go one step further and say, I don't think any religious structure, whether it's based on an exist existing system or one that you personally piece together is reliable. It may be truly useful, it may be truly meaningful, it may be truly transformative, but I'm not convinced that it is true in some defensible, factual sense. So in other words, a religion followed by only me is probably not true. While a religion that's followed by a lot of people may feel more true because a lot of people are following it, but it's probably also not true. Just because there's a lot of people using the telescope doesn't mean that it's the best or the most correct picture of the sun. So I would say I agree, and I'm just going to step further, if that makes sense. They also say that open spirituality is not nearly as fair-minded or unbiased as, or as free as people like me might believe because people like me are still very much influenced by the cultural status quo, right? We say that we're not adhering to a religion, but we kind of are. We, we kind of are, in a sense, adhering to another religion that they would call the spirit of the age. And whatever morality or standards come from the spirit of the age are without any reference to an ultimate moral authority because they're just rooted in human subjectivity. They're not rooted in a objective, moral source, God, or the Bible. And again, I agree. <laughs> I actually agree with this point because I believe that, I believe what I believe because of some combination of my DNA and my experience. And my experience includes the time and place that I was born, the culture that I was born into. My, my experience, this mind interacting with this world that I am in has resulted in a perspective that I have. I 100% agree with that. But again, I think they stopped short and I would go one step further and say, religious structures, including Christianity, aren't independent objective systems. They are also a product of their time and place. And I think the more that I have looked into Christianity and into the Bible, I have seen that they in and of themselves are the same type of product of time and place. Think about that God 
that Moses was interacting with at the top of the mountain. And this God is up there saying, build this in this very specific way, using these very specific materials, sacrifice things in this way. Oh, I want to kill these people. Do this with your slave. And then you ask yourself the question, why is that God, why does that God seem so different than Jesus? Mm -hmm. Now, I know what the traditional Christian answer to that is, that it's the same God relating to people who are different. He has the capacity to relate to people in different ways. And there are different sort of eras of his relationship and grace and all that. <clears throat> but I tend to think a, a, a much better explanation is the way that, the reason that, that, Mo, that God for Moses on top of that mountain was saying those things is because that God was a product of those people at that time and place. The reason that God was talking about those things is because that's the God that they needed at the time. They needed a God to tell them what to do with their slaves. They needed a God to tell them what to do when the bull gets out and gores somebody. Mm -hmm. They needed a God to tell them that this is the kind of place that they want, that, that this God wants to live, right? And every, every I, I believe that this is an illuminating perspective on the Bible itself when you understand that the people who were writing are conceptualizing God for themselves at the time and the place that they find themselves in. And that's why, despite the Christian doctrine of the univocality of the Bible, the idea that this is God's word, this authoritative and is consistent and it's of one voice, despite that being a doctrine of the church, it's not a, it doesn't fit well at all with the reality of the Bible, which feels like a disparate collection of writings of people who believe different things, that had different gods, because they are creating these gods for themselves. And so, to me, when you say to me that I am a, that, that as an open spiritual, spiritualist, I am a product of my time and place, I am uh, submitting to the spirit of the age, I'd say, okay, um, yes, to a point, I agree. I have to agree because I have no choice because I think that the spirit of the age is determining what we're all thinking depending on what our starting point is. But I think that the system that you are holding up as being somehow outside of and above the spirit of the age is just the spirit of another age. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, I, I could talk about this for a really long time. Um, as you can imagine, this, these are the kinds of things that I listen to when I'm working out, Link. <laughs> I'm almost tempted to begin just curling <laughs> while talking about this. That's not going to be a good look. But um, I think it'll connect more with people who don't think about it in the way that I think about it to expand on the analogy that they use in the book. Because I think that this analogy is useful. I love analogies. And I think that it, to help understand where I ended up landing and the way that I see things now, going a few steps further on their analogy would be helpful. So I agree with Josh and Jack that I was in the attic. I was in attic Christianity, right? I mean... Take, for example, the fact that one of the sort of the big dominoes to fall for me was beginning to believe in evolution. 
right? When the evidence for common ancestry became indisputable and overwhelming, I couldn't reconcile it with the view that I had of the special creation of animals and especially people. And that was only a problem because I was an evangelical Christian. If I had been Catholic, then I would have been like, oh, the Pope already said that evolution happened. So I, this isn't a problem for me. This doesn't change anything, right? But because I was in my very specific attic, that really screwed up my telescope. It was a giant ding in my particular telescope. But I do not believe that I jumped out of the attic. This is where I take issue, right? I don't think I jumped out of the attic. I went back down to the main floor. I looked around. I inspected the foundation. That's essentially what a decade of my struggle was. And I saw some cracks. <laughs> I saw a lot of cracks in, 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 in the foundation of this house. Some real structural issues coming from a former civil engineer. Um, and when I found these, I went and I asked some people in the house about them, you know, like guys who seem like the experts. And essentially what they would tell me is that, listen, the house is in great shape. There's nothing wrong with the house. The foundation is solid. If you're seeing problems, uh, that's not because there's something wrong with the house. It's because there's something wrong with you. you. Your perspective is messed up. The house is solid. The Christian foundation, the Christian house is solid. So, but I was telling people, you know, I think I, I, I think I might leave the house. I think I might go outside and they're like, it's dangerous out there. Don't leave the house. It's the last thing you want to do. You can't have a meaningful life out there. You cannot have a meaningful life outside the house. There's nothing but emptiness and destruction outside of the house. This is where God lives. This is his house. This is the place where you need to be. This is the place where it's safe. But I kept finding issues. Uh, and I would say specifically the thing that I was finding was I was finding things that maybe made me think that the house wasn't built by God, but that the house was built by people. That was the overwhelming conclusion that I was coming to, right? Continuing to find this, this evidence that I couldn't have confidence in this as some home of spiritual truth because it was people had created it. Um, and when I finally admitted to myself that I couldn't have confidence in the house, I walked out the front door. I didn't jump out of the attic. I walked out the front door. And then when I walked out, I looked back at the house. And from the outside, I could see, you know, there's a lot of things about this house that are beautiful, um, meaningful. There's even, there, there's transformational aspects of this house for the people who are inside. But I saw something else that when I was outside of the house, it seemed even more evident to me that it was a house built by people, not a house that God built. And then the longer I stayed outside and the longer that I looked at it, the more and more, you know, a new perspective of the house emerged as like, well, definitely this is a house built by people. I see why I didn't see that when I was inside, but now that I'm on the outside, it's very evident to me that this is a construction of people. But I also looked around and saw something else. I saw other houses that people had built. And inside all these houses, there were people saying very similar things. They're like, our house was built by God. This is where God lives. They're passionate 
They had their own set of evidence. They had their own reasons for why their house was the place that God lived. Just an interesting note. <laughs> oh, there's other people who think like we did when we were inside our house. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to be honest, it wasn't easy. It has not been easy to be on the outside of the house. Inside the house, there's house rules, there's systems, there's rituals, there's answers. Um, Somebody dies, we know what to do. Somebody gets married, we know what to do. Somebody gets sick, we know what to do. On the outside, those rules are not as established. Mm -hmm. And it makes life a little bit more difficult in one sense, right? You don't have the same house rules. Also found that, you know, the people who were still on the inside of the house thought a lot less of me for being on the outside. Mm -hmm. Uh, they told me all the real reasons that I left the house. Even though while I was in the house and as I was leaving the house and after I left the house, I told them why I left the house. Mm -hmm. And it was because I had problems with the house. No, 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 we cannot accept that. The problem is you. You never really were a member of this house, by the way. (laughs) You never really belonged in this house. You never really believed the things that we believe. They told me why I had left the house. Um, They reminded me that the issues that I had with the house were illegitimate and it was really masking some deeper desire, right? My desire to essentially just be my own selfish self outside of the house, to follow my own selfish desires. I'd been deceived. At best, I'd been deceived. At worst, I was just being a selfish asshole who wanted to be my own God and was not willing to live inside of a house. Mm but I also found a lot of other people outside that house. You know, some of them had walked out of the the house, the same house. Some of them had similar reasons for leaving. Uh, They decided there was something wrong with the house and they had left. A a lot of people had left for completely different reasons. They had been badly hurt by somebody inside the house, right? Um, There was also a bunch of people who had walked out of a bunch of other houses. And then there was a bunch of people who had never been in a house at all and found it odd that we had all been in those houses and were so serious about it. And I noticed something about these people. Uh, Some of them were self-absorbed. Some of them were narcissists. Some of them were dangerous. Some of them were living lives with only themselves in mind, just like a lot of people in the house, surprisingly. And some of them were genuine, you know, on the outside. Some of them were kind, loving, helpful. There were selfless people living lives with others in mind just like some people in the house. But I found that most of them were like me, some combination of those things, messy, you know, trying their best, screwing up a lot, Um, just like a lot of people in the house, just like a lot of people outside the house, just like people. And so I started to doubt whether or not someone being good or bad had much at all to do with whether or not they had ever been in the house or they were in the house. It seemed like the main purpose of the house was to be able to say who was in the house and who was outside of the house. It was a way to kind of know where people stood, mm-hmm. right? And so it was a great way to divide people into those who belonged and those who didn't belong. But like I said, I've been told that there would be no hope. There'd be, there's no hope outside the house. There's no meaning, there's no purpose out there. Um, That isn't what I found at all. 
I found that just like when I did when I was inside the house, I wanted to live a life characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, i.e. the fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. And I found not only did I know a lot of people outside of the house that wanted to live like that, I wanted to live like that. And I could also continue to live that kind of life and pursue those kinds of things outside of the house. And I actually found many, many things outside of the house that were incredible resources for that kind of life. Things that I would have never seen, heard, touched, been exposed to if I had stayed in the house. And then in terms of God, once I got outside of the house, I didn't stop looking for God. I was just convinced that he wasn't inside or only inside that house. Um, and it wasn't that I stopped hearing God's voice. Sometimes I think I do hear God's voice, but it's not coming from one of the houses. It's like coming from over the ridge or in the river or in the wind, right? And it's not saying very specific things about who God is and what God wants. It's a different kind of voice. Um, and sometimes I think that maybe God is just all around outside, in, inside, outside, and all around the houses. I don't really know, and I don't know if that's the point, but I'm not ever going to stop listening, ever stop pursuing, and ever stop trying to hear and follow God's voice. But I'm definitely, I mean, the one thing I am pretty thoroughly convinced of at this point is that though I'm not sure where God is, I'm convinced that they are not limited to one particular structure. They're not in any one of the houses. And I don't know, you know, when it comes to spirituality and spiritual things, I think where I have ultimately landed is that spiritual, I do believe or certainly hope that spiritual experiences can be attained, but I'm not convinced that they can be contained or explained. I'm not trying to sound like Jesse Jackson here. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately that is the viewpoint from outside of the house. A hope, a desire, a sense that there is something beyond and that I'm driven by a desire to connect with whatever that is. But the idea that I have to contain it and explain it the idea that that thing, whatever it is, is constrained to an idea, to a book, to a religious philosophy, to an ideology, seems pretty preposterous. And the last thing I'll say is, because it's a common criticism, whenever I speak in this way, what I am told is that I am just proposing a, a new philosophy, that I am making a new truth claim, that okay. I'm doing something that's no different. Another way to say that is you might say that I am building a new house. I do not believe that is what's happening. I am saying I'm not building a new house on purpose. And to tell me that my not building a house is building a house, that I'm not building a house. That's the thing I'm taking issue with. I'm not making a, you know, uh, a truth claim that I think applies to you and everyone else. I am saying that 
about such things, I don't think we can make truth claims. And if you want to get into semantics and say that that's a truth claim in and of itself, I think you're missing the point that I'm making. I'm saying, I'm not building a house. Don't think we should build houses, at least right now. Um, that's not a house. So, Pastor Red, are you going to close with an invitation? Yeah. I would like everyone to bow their heads no. and close their eyes and okay. to not come into my house <laughs> because I don't have one. Okay. Let's just keep walking around, guys. Let's just keep walking around and be there for each other. See somebody in need, help them out. Make healthy choices. Love people. It doesn't seem that complicated. <laughs> but you are gonna recommend a book. You've already done it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I recommend, I mean, I can't say I recommend Surprised by Doubt even though I'm in it. If, hey, listen, if you wanna read it, fine. I've already told you about it. I told you what was in it. The only reason I'm saying I don't recommend it is because I don't agree with it. Uh, but what I do recommend is uh, Anthony DeMello, Awareness. And I would say, and if you don't want to sit down and listen to something that's like nine hours long, just search Anthony DeMello on YouTube and just click on any one of his short videos. He is a character and a half, and he's very oh, yeah? funny, and I just love the guy. And I love the way he talks about things. Um, and I think you might too. Well, I appreciate the update. I think that was, uh, it's very well organized. It wasn't built though, because nope. I mean, it's not a, it wasn't a structure. Uh, and I think I did pretty good too. You did great. I didn't interrupt you. And I, uh, you know, I, I wasn't tempted to fall asleep, which is to your, <laughs> to your credit. Um, so, uh, where's my candy? <laughs> we'll get you some. We got candy on the uh, the front desk. Carly's got some Butterfingers for you. Next week, um, we have fielded questions. In addition to me sharing what I want to share, we've got questions that we're going to move through at a at a pretty decent pace. Um, good questions that we've heard again and again and again when it comes when it pop up every time. Uh, you share an update or I share an update or you weigh, we weigh in on spiritual topics. So we're gonna get into that, It'll be a different vibe, uh, but similar topic next week. So um, follow along the conversation, hashtag Ear Biscuits. Remember, leave a review uh, wherever you listen. That's always helpful to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And call us and leave a voicemail. You know, we like hearing your voice, especially if you're asserting something that might um, elicit a response from us. Hmm. So uh, let us have it. 1-888-EARPOD1. That's it? You've got nothing else to say? That's no, it. No benediction. Thanks for listening. Um, maybe we'll talk about it again. You'll talk about it next week. You're gonna give us a little update, yeah. but maybe we'll talk about it next year. Maybe we won't. We never know. Hi guys, Jana from Alabama. Uh, listening to the Taylor Swift episode, great episode, hilarious. People are people. It's just fun to speculate about all that stuff and allow them to be people. I enjoyed your take on it and I'm very appreciative. Take care, bye.